Welcome to Double Truck, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. What exactly is it that makes Stephen Curry so good? For the last three seasons, the Golden State Warriors have been one of the most dominant teams in the NBA. That's thanks in no small part to Curry, who seems to have superhuman court vision and an assassin's accuracy when it comes to passing the ball. And then, of course, there's his three-point shot. You may have heard he's quite good at that, too. On today's episode, Dave Fleming takes us back to where it all began. This is the story of how a rickety basketball hoop in rural Virginia produced two generations of NBA stars. Coming up later, you can join me for the interview with David, where he tells us just how a bag of barbecue potato chips helped seal his interview with Steph. Here's the story. Stephen Curry, The Full Circle, the untold story of how a single rickety hoop in rural Virginia produced two generations of NBA greats, including the future-shaping Golden Boy, by David Fleming. There were too many bears roaming the woods behind the house, and with four daughters, far too many Barbies inside. Just before the school year ended in the early 1970s in Grottos, Virginia, Wardell Jack Curry needed a solution, and fast. All he wanted was a way to keep his only son, Dell, occupied by something other than deadly animals or dolls during the long summer days ahead. As it turned out, though, with nothing more than an old utility pole, a fiberglass backboard, and some fabricated steel brackets, Jack Curry ended up changing the sport of basketball and producing the ultimate point guard, his grandson, Stephen Curry. Jack's hoop was never much to look at. Its finest feature by far was the old reliable street lamp that hovered overhead and dutifully blinked on at dusk, bathing the key in warm yellow light. But this was Jack's plan all along. Only people who truly loved the game and understood the commitment it required would stick past dark on his country court. The soft wings of the backboard had more give than a fence gate, the thick steel rim offered no absolution. Only shots placed perfectly in the middle of the cylinder passed through. The institutional green metal breaker box just behind the hoop gave off a constant static hum that lured a shooter's focus away from the target. And the splintery wooden utility pole wasn't squared to a single landmark. Not the white ranch-style house, not the driveway, not the Blue Ridge Mountains to the south, or the creek to the north. So every shot required instant, expert recalibration. Years of toil in the sun and mud honed Dell's fluid, deadly jumper, a shot that produced a state title, a scholarship to Virginia Tech, and a 16-year NBA career, mostly in Charlotte, that ended in 2002. And when Dell and his wife Sonia started their own family, their first child, Wardell Stephen Curry II, got more than just his name from Grandpa Jack. Stefan inherited the hoop and the same deep abiding love for the game it evokes. During frequent childhood trips to Grottos, a sleepy mix of horse farms and trailer parks an hour northwest of Charlottesville, Stefan and his younger brother Seth, who played at Duke, would barely wait for the car to stop rolling before darting around back to start shooting. Their grandma Juanita, 79, whom everyone calls Ducky, knew that if she wanted to kiss hello, 
she had to position herself between the car and the hoop. Jack died when Stefan was two. This is where Curry's love of the long ball was born, his trying to be the first one in the family to swish it from sixty feet, blind, peeking around the corner from the top kitchen step. I always felt like the love and the lessons of that hoop got passed down to me, Stefan says. It's crazy to think about how everything kind of started right there at this house, with this one old hoop. This season in Golden State, the legend grows larger by the minute. Nearly every night since the All-Star Game, for which Curry was the top vote-getter, and where he sank 13 straight shots to win the three-point contest, he's been expanding the lore of Jack's hoop, as well as the parameters by which we define point guard greatness. Yes, his stats are MVP-worthy. Through March 24th, he ranked 7th in points, 23.4 per game, 6th in assists, 7.9, and 3rd in steals, 2.1. Yes, he has the 4th highest 3-point percentage, 43.6% in NBA history, and has led the league in total threes since 2012, if you're counting. And yes, in 6 years, he has catapulted Golden State from perennial non-factor to title favorite. But Curry's evolution this season is about something more profound than shooting, stats, or hardware. The point guard groomed by that historic hoop in Grottos has become the game's future. Curry is standing at the forefront of a new era of playmaker. For the first time since Magic Johnson took an evolutionary leap for the position, we are witnessing the ultimate embodiment of the point guard. Not a shooter like Steve Nash, a passer like John Stockton, a defender like Gary Payton, or a floor general like Isaiah Thomas. Someone with the ability to do it all, excelling in each category while elevating everyone around him and then topping it the very next night. Basketball's new six foot three, 190-pound unstoppable force. He's lethal, says Curry's coach Steve Kerr. He's mesmerizing, says his teammate Clay Thompson. He's the best shooter I've ever seen, says his president Barack Obama. Oftentimes, he's all three at once. During a 106-98 win over the Clippers on March 8th, Curry needed all of seven seconds to transform L.A.'s defense from a group of elite athletes to a gaggle of bewildered senior citizens stammering around at the wrong connecting gate. Up by ten, with just under nine minutes left in the third, Curry dribbled past half-court near the high left wing and used a pick to split defenders Matt Barnes and Chris Paul. When he re-emerged, Seven-foot-one-inch power forward Spencer Halls and center DeAndre Jordan had walled off his escape to the basket. Curry had a split second left before the Clippers converged on him like a junkyard car crusher. He stopped on a dime, dribbled backward through his legs to his left hand, then returned the ball behind his back to his right. The move caused Paul and Jordan to lunge awkwardly into the vortex Curry no longer occupied. Curry then spun away from the basket and what looked like an impending bear hug from an exasperated Halls before dribble-lunging back, three feet behind the arc, as if leaping a mud puddle in Jack Curry's gravel driveway. In the blink of an eye, well, less, actually, Curry planted, coiled, elevated, and snapped his wrist. Splash. That could be the greatest move I've ever seen live, blurted stunned ESPN analyst Jeff Van Gundy, who coached against Michael Jordan many times. When his colleagues giggled at the suggestion, though, Van Gundy growled back without hesitation, No, I'm being serious. The sequence had everything. Court presence, ball handling, flawless shooting fundamentals, creativity, and above all, 
major, major cojones. It left Kerr looking like a young Macaulay Culkin on the bench. And across the country, it had Grandma Ducky cheering from her favorite burgundy chair in front of the TV. Each time Stefan does his thing, we all picture Big Jack up in heaven, nudging all the angels, gathering them up, says Steph's aunt and Dell's sister, Jackie Curry. And he's yelling and pointing, Look, look down there at what I did. Y'all know I started this, right? Started all this with just that one little hoop right there. Dribbling through the rocks and tire tracks at Jack's hoop honed Curry's ball handling skills, while the unpredictable backboard and the unforgiving rim tested his touch and inspired the perfect, impossibly high parabolic arc of his shot. But the court also polished his composure. This is where he first obtained the Dow of point guard. This was a visionary place for me, Curry says. Make it work, no matter what you have to work with. That's something that stuck with me very early on as a point guard. Adjust. Get creative. Try a different angle, a different lane, a different move, or a different shot. Just make it work. Out there on my grandpa's court, there was no better place in the world to breed that kind of creativity. After all, it's hard to get rattled by Grizzlies fans once you've hit 100 free throws in a row with actual underfed bears lurking just beyond the tree line. Curry calls his dad Pops, and here, listening to Pops' stories is how Stefan came to understand the endless, solitary work that would be required. His favorite tale was how every summer morning, after Jack and Juanita left for work at the GE plant, Dell's sisters would walk him to the back steps, place the basketball against his chest, and lock him out of the house. If he was good, if, say, he didn't interrupt any key moments of General Hospital, they'd throw him a fried egg sandwich out the window for lunch. And then, half an hour before his parents returned, the girls would unlatch the door, dust him off, change his shirt, wipe his face with a wet dish towel, and swear him to secrecy. The eight hours or so in between? Back then, the closest sign of civilization was a tasty freeze ten miles away. There was nothing else for Dell to do but work on perfecting one of the most fluid, efficient, and effective jump shots in NBA history, the same form that Stefan would one day mimic. Shooting on the perpetually muddy court, Stefan learned there was only one sure way to keep the ball safe, clean, and in the same area code. Make every shot. That connection to perfection comes from my granddad in his hoop, Stefan says. It was make it or chase it out there, and if you missed, it was terrible. So you didn't miss. That instills something in you as a shooter without you even knowing it's happening. Jack would study Dell's shot from behind the lace curtains of the dining room window. Occasionally, he would growl at something he didn't like, then crash through the screen door at the back of the house. Father and son would fuss over fundamentals, their voices carrying for miles over the Blue Ridge foothills. And then, as a universal gesture of approval and affection, Jack would stand under the rim and silently rebound for his son. When Jack died in 1991, at 58, after a sudden heart attack, he had just sat down to watch Dell play the Lakers on TV. By the time Dell flew back to Virginia, the house was packed with mourners. He went straight to his mama, gave her a gentle peck on the cheek, 
then weaved through the crowd to his room and shut the door, devastated. After a while, though, they heard it again, the faint, familiar, life-affirming noise coming from Jack's hoop. Boom, boom, boom. Badink. The basketball butterfly effect of Jack's hoop didn't fully hit Dell until many years later, though, when he realized he'd have to pass on the exact same lessons he learned to Stefan. As a skinny, five-foot-eight-inch, 150-pound sophomore at Charlotte Christian School, Stefan still used a flip shot that seemed to originate from his belt buckle. It was inefficient and easy to block, and Dell knew that if Stefan had any aspirations to play at the next level, he'd have to tear it all down and rebuild his shooting mechanics from scratch. It was a frustrating, tense few months for everyone. Stefan, who loves his craft so much that he often takes 1,000 shots before practice, says it was the only time in his life he flat-out hated shooting. The court at the Curry House in Tony, South Charlotte, is a little different from the one in Grotto's. Here, there's almost an entire half-court of perfectly smooth concrete between the stucco-lined two-car garage, the professionally installed top-grade glass backboard, and the perfectly green lawn. Manicured crepe myrtles shade the court and prevent the ball from bouncing into the glistening pool. But the summer-long grind Stefan endured was almost identical to what his pops experienced, minus the fried egg sandwiches. We called it the Summer of Tears, Jackie says. Dell became Jack, Stefan became Dell, and it was Stefan who shot a lot of shots with tears in his eyes. They got through it. Stefan perfected his trademark fluid, low-lift, lightning-quick form and an effortless overhead swan-neck follow-through. Almost as soon as the game's greatest shot was created, however, Stefan sensed it wasn't going to be enough. Even though he had played point guard for only a year during his final season at Tiny Davidson College, the Warriors took him with the seventh pick overall in the 2009 draft and began to rebuild around him. Three years later, there were lingering doubts about his defense, ball handling, and durability after chronic ankle problems limited him to just 23 starts in the 2011-2012 season. Curry had always studied and drawn inspiration from Nash, another slightly built point guard who used shooting skills, creativity, leadership, and instinct to become a two-time MVP. But the full picture of how Curry wanted to place his own stamp on the position didn't fully click for him until the summer of 2012, when he visited the training camp of the Carolina Panthers, one of his favorite teams. Curry sat in on a full day of quarterback meetings and saw a contemporary in Cam Newton who won the 2011 NFL Offensive Rookie of the Year by playing quarterback like a point guard in shoulder pads. In the playbook and on film, Curry recognized how Newton was juggling the same dozen or so basic responsibilities that point guards also have to manage in real time. Game situations, momentum, positioning, ball protection, elevating teammates, staying three steps ahead of the defense, and, when needed most, making something happen all by yourself. The difference was that even as a rookie, Newton wasn't hesitant, overly worried about mistakes or brain-locked by all the duties the way Curry had been. Newton was smooth, effortless, in command, and having a freaking blast. Curry realized that although a point guard has dozens of responsibilities, the toughest one is to let it all go and ball like you're back on Jack's country court. He had always known how to play the game, 
What Curry has improved on dramatically since then is how to feel it. It's all become so natural, Curry says. I think that's why I feel so comfortable on the floor most nights. It also helps to have Grandma Ducky cheering from 13 rows behind the warrior's bench. On February 24th, she and some other relatives made the 150-mile trek from Grotto's to the Verizon Center in D.C., only to sit in silence as the Wizards wrestled away control of the game late in the third. Sensing the momentum shift, Curry took over, scoring the Warriors' final nine points in the quarter, including a breathtaking baseline drive through three defenders that started with an impending oh-crap car crash feel and ended with a teardrop runner that brought Wizards fans out of their seats for the only time the entire game. In the fourth, Curry drew a charge on John Wall, and every time Washington tried to bully Curry at the top of the key, he calmly delivered one flawless no-look pass after another to a series of giddy, wide-open teammates. Curry finished with 32 points, 8 assists, and 0 turnovers, and a 114-107 road win that, if not for his presence and command at the point, would have easily slipped away. Brilliant, said a nearly speechless Kerr afterward. Absolutely brilliant. It was the kind of jaw-dropping win the Warriors have become known for. The next day, Curry visited the White House as part of his work with the United Nations' Nothing But Net's anti-malaria program. Inside the Oval Office, he and Obama discussed their shared admiration for wild Warriors forward Draymond Green before the president invited him back for a reunion next year, this time in the East Wing with the rest of the team. Just a few months ago, an NBA title seemed inconceivable. The Warriors had a rookie coach and a rep for being soft in the league notoriously inhospitable to elite newcomers. The Bulls, Lakers, Spurs, and Heat have won 16 of the past 19 titles. Some experts, like us, had them ranked as low as 7th in the preseason. Now Golden State has the best record in franchise history, the top seed in the playoffs, and a mind-blowing 10.2-point differential that ranks it squarely among the greatest teams in NBA history. You can definitely feel something special brewing with our team, Curry says. But all the real rewards are in the playoffs. Point guards that have won championships definitely separate themselves in the conversation of all-time greats. And I want to be a part of that group. The last basketball honor the Curry family celebrated together was in September 2012, when Fort Defiance High School renamed its court in honor of Dell. Afterward, at the house in Grottos, everyone, cousins, great-grandchildren, friends, neighbors, and future NBA All-Stars alike, was drawn to the same spot. That old hoop is going to be there for a long, long time, Stefan says. When my kids are old enough, I will definitely be passing it on. That will be a cool moment, getting to know what my dad felt like watching me learning to shoot on that hoop, and what Grandpa Jack felt like watching my dad after he put it up. The net on Jack's hoop is upside down. The wood is weathered and splintered. And over the years, as the area has grown, the utility pole has become covered in thick, black, twisted vines of cable and electric wire. Which means that even if you wanted to take down Jack's hoop, you couldn't. First, of course, you'd have to get past Grandma Ducky. What's more, you'd have to disconnect the entire neighborhood in more ways than one. 
It's a fitting and enduring tribute to Jack and what he started. His hoop was here first. Everything else came after. And that's the story of how Steph Curry became one of the best point guards in the NBA and how he created that signature shot of his. Joining us on the line right now is Dave Fleming, who wrote the piece. Dave, thank you for joining us today. Sure, my pleasure. So let's start with one of the biggest parts of this piece is it starts with a basketball hoop, and it's a story about an inanimate object, at least in some ways, what, what's the challenge there in, in writing about something like that to, to sort of lead off this piece? I think there were a couple of challenges. The, the first big one was to make sure that it was still there, right? And it still uh, was in existence. So that was the first big thing. I actually pitched the story. Uh, maybe I shouldn't reveal this. Before I actually had 100% confirmation that the hoop was still there. So I was grateful that the hoop was still in place. and then. For me, what really the big thing was, and I think you hit on it, right? It it was connecting um, different parts of Steph's game and his shot to that actual hoop and that setting. That was a big part of it. And then also the emotional connection, um, which by going up there and talking to all the different parts of his members of his family, um, that to me is what really brought the story alive is that there was an emotional connection between not just Steph and his brother and his dad, but his aunts and his uncles and, and his grandma and his grandpa, because they all associate that hoop with, with really the person who started it all, his, his grandfather. So then how did you find out the story of the hoop in Jack Curry's backyard? Is it widely known? It sounds like you, you, this is, might be something that you, maybe got from some nefarious sources. <laughs> no, this was, um, it was, I sort of, I, I got this nugget on my own. And the nefarious part was uh, I had done a story uh, where we broke down sort of uh, millisecond by millisecond, how the, the technique and the science and the art behind Steph's, uh, shot and that was a, a I think a year or a season before this story came out and at the end of those interviews and Steph was pretty good you know he was kind of unknown when we did that original story and and he was pretty good in the interviews um, but at the very end of our talk I said you know I know your dad taught you how to shoot who taught your dad how to shoot and literally for like the last 90 seconds because their PR guys were pulling him away. He lit up, his face lit up when he started telling the story of this, this hoop that his grandpa had sort of nailed um, illegally to, uh, to an old telephone pole or an old uh, lamp behind his house. And, and it was, I sort of, I, I debated whether I should put that nugget in the story because then it would be out there. Uh, and I decided not to, and I saved it uh, for sort of this perfect occasion, I think. That's terrific. Uh, to, that seems like a right instinct there. So how much time <laughs> did you did you spend? I mean, it sounds like you went back there. How much time did you spend sort of going back and, and looking at this and, and sort of doing the footwork and reporting this? There was a lot of it, right? Because 
this was in the middle of the season, so I wasn't going to get great access to, to Steph. So uh, luckily, again, because of the sort of the, the connection to his grandpa, it was one of those things where everybody in his family was happy and excited to take as much time as I needed to talk about his grandpa, uh, to talk about Jack. Um, so his dad was happy to talk about it. His, his aunts especially loved talking about it. And then his grandma, you know, Jack, um, Jack died several years ago, but um, Steph's grandma, who still lives in the house and, and still sort of looks out the back kitchen window at the hoop that Jack put up every day, um, she was also very gracious and and uh, and and very generous with her time and and all of her memories too about the hoop. So there was a ton of time spent in Charlotte um, talking to different family members, and then I drove up to Virginia uh, to spend the day at the house and to see the hoop for myself. So it, so- it sounds like you spent a lot of time with members of the Curry family. Yeah, they were really the ones who really added all the depth and the color and the emotion to the story. Um, they were the ones who, it was such a, I think it, the great thing about this was it was, it's such a great way to tell, to tell a story about Steph, who at that point everybody was writing about, um, but in a way that, that, sort of honored these people that normally never get any credit for his development. Um, so like I said, I think the family, if it had been sort of another kind of, Oh, you know, nobody recruited him. He had to go to Davidson and he was a skinny little kid and Oh, that incredible NCA run and, you know, uh, et cetera. And nobody believed in him. They thought he couldn't make it in the NBA. I think if, if you were, if I had approached all these people with that same topic, I wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have been the same, but the fact that it was about Jack and Jack's hoop, that's really what made it special. Well, one of the tricks of this story, it seems like, is balancing the past with the present. How did you figure out what to keep in and what to leave out? And, you know, when writing about the history in the past, obviously sometimes you have to be careful about not getting too nostalgic. How did you balance those things? I think that was the, that was probably the biggest struggle. And um, that was kind of the post-it note that I had to put on my computer that was kind of like, don't forget, you know, this is not the sort of nostalgic old hoop issue. This is the point guard issue. Um, and we were trying to make a point that, that Steph Curry was, had become already maybe one of the greatest point guards um in the history of the game or that he was sort of headed that way. And so that was the trick. And again, that's sort of where it really locked in for me was when we could take this incredible backstory and, and connect it directly, make a direct link to um, parts of Steph's game that people could see on TV every night. And that to me was the really cool part, right? The fact that even his, I think one of his aunts said, you know, one of the reasons that stuff that to him he never wanted to miss was because if you missed on this hoop, you know, the ball was either going to go into uh, a patch of briars or it was going to go, you know, a hundred feet down this gravel road, or it was going to go, it was going to bounce back um, and across the street into the Creek. So 
to me, I thought that was a really cool way to, I mean, you understand now why Steph, his idea is to actually be perfect when he shoots. And it's because there were some, some interesting consequences uh, on the, on the hoop that he learned to shoot on. Well, given all that, how did you identify what was the conflict in this story? You know, the, the way that this sets up with the history of the hoop and his family, it seems like it sort of tells you how he spent so much time to become so good at his shot. And obviously current day, you know, he, he's one of the three-point leaders in the NBA. But from the storytelling standpoint, how did you identify what was the conflict in there? What was the thing that needed to be resolved? I think we knew going into that there was, there was there was a there was a fascinating sort of generational cycle in the Curry family where uh, Dell and his dad on this original hoop had the sort of same kind of relationship, um, sort of mentor and 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 protege, coach and player, father and son that was sort of contentious and and not always very easy. Um, you know, Dell shared that same relationship with his dad with, at this hoop as Steph did with Dell um, on, on his hoop, his hoop in his childhood home. And so I think there was that connection of, um, you know, to be great, you almost always have to go through these struggles. And especially when it comes to a technique that's as precise as shooting, um, it's not always, it can be sort of, exhausting and frustrating and it can pit father and son against each other. And, and that's really where I think the tension comes from um, because Steph really had to reinvent his shot. Um, and, and he did it through his dad on a hoop uh, very similar to the one that, that Dell went through the exact same things with his dad. Well, one of the things that you had to do in this piece and, and the other one that you mentioned in, in breaking down his shot is the actual work of describing that in words. That, that seems like it's incredibly difficult. How did you do that? Oh, I, we've done several stories like that. I love those. Like, to me, there is the, you, you, the more nitty-gritty and the more sort of technical um, about these kind of functions. I, I, think, I think they're really interesting, and I think a lot of people don't take the time. We always just say, oh, he's got a great shot. Oh, he's got a clean shot. Um, oh, he has a fast shot, but no one ever sort of takes the time to really dig in and go, it's because his elbow is here and his wrist is here. And there is a sort of, uh, beautiful efficiency to the, to the, uh, kinetic chain that Steph Curry uses to, to, to get that shot off so fast. So, um, to me, I think some people maybe approach that part of the story as a burden, but, uh, I really enjoy that kind of writing and, and enjoy that kind of uh, explaining sports technique and fundamentals on that kind of a level. Well, the last thing that I, I have to know about this story is, did you actually get a, sh a chance yourself to take a shot on this hoop? <laughs> we believe me, we, I asked, there were no, um, well, first of all, it was in the middle of the winter and it was really cold, but um we, I went out there. The photographer was there on the day that I was there, um, and uh, there were no there were no basketballs to be found. But um, I certainly could imagine 
going back and taking shots. And, and what Steph's family told me was, you know, there are kids in that neighborhood who play on that hoop still all the time, and they have no idea that it's, it's the hoop that Steph Curry learned to shoot on. Um, the only other great story from that day was his grandma, his grandma said, you know, are you going to go meet up with Steph? And I said, yeah, eventually we're going to, I think I'm going to meet with him in, in DC and then we're going to talk on the phone some. And she said, well, if he finds out that you were here and you didn't pick up these favorite uh, barbecue potato chips that they make in our town, he'll never forgive you and he'll never forgive me. And I really thought she was joking, but she said, please, if you go see Steph, you've got to pick up these chips. He loves these chips. And so I did it and actually took them with me all the way up to D.C. when we met for the photo shoot. Um, and, and he actually, when I pulled out the chips, he actually did sort of fall over. And he was so happy and he was so appreciative. Um, but the only problem was the chips, they're barbecue chips. And the photo shoot, he's in his white uniform, and everybody on the photo staff was actually kind of mad at me because he kept wiping his hands off on his uh, uniform, and so they would have to stop and brush off his <laughs> white uniform. <laughs> that's that's the secret to good journalism right there is, is always having some barbecue chips handy. Uh, Dave Fleming, yeah, it never hurts you. to have a bribe like that. <laughs> exactly. Dave Fleming, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the show, and thank you so much for uh, for writing this story. It was fantastic, and we appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Dave Fleming for joining us on the show today and writing a great piece about Steph Curry. You can find that and more on ESPN.com slash truck. That's spelled exactly like you would think, double truck, one word. And you can join us again next time for more stories. Thanks for listening to Double Truck.